Good morning. It's my great joy to be here this morning with you. Especially on this day, I would like to start off by wishing a very happy birthday to my beloved husband, Joshua. You are 36 now, and that means you now have an entire congregation of friends to remind you the next time you forget how old you are. Will you pray with me? Lord, open your word this morning to us as we consider it together. For the sake of your name, amen. So I don't know where your experience has taken you, but I did not grow up in congregations that observed the church calendar beyond the annual celebrations of Easter and Christmas. My parents kept the traditions of Advent in our home But I was a seminary student before I discovered that Advent is the new year of the Christian calendar. You probably knew that before I cottoned on to it. But in case you didn't, Advent starts our year with a four-week-long preparation for the second coming of Christ. We celebrate the new year preparing for the return of our Lord. We honor Christmas, of course, almost as a proxy coming of Christ. But then we move in to another season. And did you know that we are at the end already of the second season of the Christian calendar? This is the second Sunday of Christmas. We are still in Christmas. The 12 days of Christmas are not just some annoying song that you can't get away from in the grocery store. It's an actual church season. So Merry Christmas. Until Tuesday. When we celebrate Epiphany and then move on into the ordinary time and then on into Lent and then Easter. So it turns out that Christmas is a whole Christian season. And we are still in it. And even though the year 2014 may be over and 2015 may be only four days old, we are a full five weeks into the Christian calendar already. Many churches keep the Christian calendar with a fuller observance of special seasons and days throughout the year than what I grew up with and maybe what you did too. And in some traditions, this calendar is accompanied by a three-year cycle of scripture readings called the lectionary. These readings can form the basis of preaching or teaching and devotion for the whole congregation over the course of three years. The lectionary assigns four passages for every week, one each from the Old Testament, the Psalms, the Gospels, and the rest of the New Testament. In this way, most of the Bible is preached or read over three years in the life of a congregation without too much repetition. So why this little lesson on historical worship practices? Well, you see, today happens to be a rather special day in the lectionary. It doesn't have a special title on the calendar. It's just called the second Sunday of Christmas. It doesn't have a special service or special rituals that we observe. It is special because the lectionary assigns to this second Sunday of Christmas the same four passages every single year. 
no matter where in that three-year cycle we are, when we come to the second Sunday of Christmas, we will always encounter this passage from Jeremiah and this passage from Ephesians that we have read. There are only a few other weeks in the calendar year where the same passages are read every year of the lectionary. Most of those occur on or around Holy Week. So why the second week of Christmas? Another way to think about this might be with the question I asked when I began to prepare for this sermon. How might we benefit from these passages on this particular Sunday every year? What good might they do us? So before we get to that answer, let's take stock of where we actually are. It is 2015. We are two and a half millennia on from Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 31. And almost two millennia removed from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We might still be in the Christmas season according to the Christian calendar, but for most of us in our daily lives, Christmas is over. We've packed up the wrapping paper. We've devoured the leftovers. We have now recovered from the midnight ball drop, and maybe we have already failed in a New Year's resolution or two. Some of us are already back to work. A whole bunch of us go back to school tomorrow morning. I'm sorry, children. (laughs) We are smack dab in the middle of what some refer to as the holiday letdown. But let's be honest, Christmas isn't always that enjoyable for some of us anyway. Family tensions can kick into overdrive. We regularly fail to achieve the ideal Pinterest Christmas. And some of us are downright lonely and sad at Christmas time. So here we sit, gathered together again, Maybe some of us wondering, is that all there is to it, this Christmas thing? But now, it's the new year, right? Hope! A new leaf, a clean slate. 2015 might be the year you have been looking forward to. Maybe this is the year you get your driver's license. Or graduate from high school or college. Or get married. Or a baby is on its way. Maybe you're finally going to drop those last 10 pounds. Others of us are facing a particularly big project at work or a significant change in circumstance. And we are apprehensive about those changes. Some of us lost dear ones in 2014, and we can't bear the thought of the first full calendar year without them. We might be waiting for the fulfillment of a long-cherished dream that seems to be taking its own sweet time while the world passes us by. Still others of us just want the world to stop so we can get off. And would someone please tell these children of ours to just stop growing? Who's ready for a new year? Now, honestly... What in the world does this passage in Jeremiah have to tell us that is so important we need to hear it every single year at this time? 
doesn't even mention a new leaf or the birth of Jesus or anything we typically associate with the Christmas New Year season. Instead, it's an oracle describing the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile. In case those are not terms you're familiar with, I'm going to give you a little background here. Jeremiah was a prophet in the last days of the southern kingdom. The north, Israel, had succumbed 150 years prior to this to the conquering nation of Assyria. And the southern kingdom was spared only because prophets like Jeremiah, namely Isaiah, had confronted the king in the sin and corruption that the people of God had embraced. And they had repented. And so the Assyrian storm receded and they were spared for 150 years, give or take. Well, now Jeremiah has come on the scene in the southern kingdom and they have begun again to sit on their laurels, to rest on their chosenness as God's people. And so now in the east, the Assyrians have faded and the Babylonians have taken their place. And they are now threatening to move west to conquer all of the lands that Assyria once governed. And so Jeremiah arrives on the scene, sent to warn Judah of their pending destruction at the hands of Babylon and to plead for their repentance and return to the covenant They didn't listen to him, by the way. And ultimately, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And all the rich and powerful folk were carried off into exile, while the commoners were left behind like sheep in a slaughterhouse. In the midst of this gloom, chapter 31 opens a window onto the future, letting in the light of that time when the exiles would be set free And allowed to return to the land out of which they were cast. To rebuild the temple and their holy city. And the whole people of God allowed to enjoy healing and abundance. Listen to the hope Jeremiah conveys in this vision. Chapter 31. And I'm reading now from verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they will be my people. And jumping to verse 7 where our passage starts. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Did you catch those imperatives? These are not suggestions. You might want to think about praising God. These are commands. Sing aloud. Let your praises be heard. Do you hear the hope that we see in verses 12 and 13 and 14, which I forgot to add to the scripture reading, so you haven't heard it yet. Let me bring it before you now. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. And here's the new part. Then young women will dance and be glad. Young men and old will be merry. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. 
I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, says the Lord. Now, some of you here this morning hear these words with a hearty hope, and you are strengthened in your faith. I have a special word for you in a few minutes. For many of us this morning, there might be a pretty big gap between where we feel ourselves to be at the end of another Christmas season and the picture painted by Jeremiah's prophecy, this sunny passage promising gladness and bounty and commanding us to sing about it. I think for me, the question becomes, how can we face this encounter with Jeremiah's vision of ultimate restoration when we are still awaiting its final fulfillment? When these promises that are 2,500 years old are still, in at least some senses, in the future tense. As I've been wrestling with this passage and the one in Ephesians, a few images have been keeping me company. I think of my cousin Brandon, a captain in the U.S. Army, who has endured multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan and most recently rushed home early from Korea to be with his wife in the early birth of their child. And I think of his homecoming ceremonies. You may have seen footage of this type of thing. Troops lined up at attention in a great big hall decorated with flags and banners. And their loved ones crammed onto bleachers, trying to manage their toddlers and their tears as they wait for the commanding officer's final say-so to go and greet one another. And as beautiful and heartwarming as those reunions probably are, a lot has gone on in their absence from one another. And maybe not all the soldiers made it back. Or made it back whole. Gladness and bounty, yes, but also an undercurrent of sadness and apprehension. Homecomings like these are rarely simple and usually include the walking wounded in our throng. I think about the release from captivity that we all prayed so fervently for last year when Boko Haram captured those precious schoolgirls. And I wonder, if it had happened and they had been let go, what would their homecoming have been like? Would they have returned carrying babies in their wombs or in their arms and too traumatized ever to be at peace back in their own homes? Maybe Stockholm Syndrome set in and they wouldn't want to come home now if they could. And I wonder why I forget to pray for them these days. I think even of the brave child who walked from the rubble of that plane yesterday in Kentucky. And I thank God for her survival, even as I can imagine the survivor's guilt that she may carry as a memento for the rest of her life, knowing that every other member of her family died in that crash, and she will make a gut-wrenching return home to an empty house in Illinois. None of these homecomings are or would be simple, untainted by grief, offering pure joy. How could any of these folks say with Jeremiah, we will sorrow no more? And so with their images in mind, I began to notice some new things about Jeremiah's exiles. 
You see, there is good news for the exiles. They will return home. They will know redemption and restoration. But there is hard news, too. Not everyone survived to see this homecoming. They are only a remnant. Some will need to weep as they travel home, we are told. And will have strength enough only for the straight paths on their way. And will need to be consoled even as they settle in. Some, the lame, will need to be carried home. Others, the blind, will never see their restored home with their own eyes because age or infirmity or violence has robbed their sight. Some will need to grieve the missing. Some will need to learn how once again to manage abundance and freedom after so long in oppression and poverty. And what about verse 8? Did you catch this? Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. Can you imagine being a pregnant woman in Babylon when the, uh, when the, uh, <clears throat> the proclamation comes down from Cyrus that they can all go home? Uh, that's a thousand miles on foot. Thank you very much. No easy journey even for the hale and hearty among them, let alone when you are carrying a child or about to give birth to a child. So Jeremiah's vision promises ransom and redemption and proclaims abundance and plenty, but not before it has acknowledged full well the sorrow these exiles have endured. That the world was too strong, as Jeremiah says, for most of Jacob's descendants. That there is only a sorry remnant left, and they are in a pitiful state. The vision does not sweep that sorrow under the Christmas tree or paste a New Year smile on it. It offers instead the tender guidance home by a gentle shepherd who does the gathering with care and compassion extraordinary effort, and endless generosity. It is restoration that takes account of their woundedness and so is able to offer true healing. Of course, we know that restoration was accomplished for them and for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The shepherd who gathers is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He will turn our mourning into gladness and give us comfort and joy and satisfy us with his bountiful goodness. But how did we suddenly jump from Jeremiah's prophecy about Israel's return from Babylon to the final restoration of Jesus Christ at the end of all things? The tension for some of us here this morning is that as it turns out, The sorrow and suffering of Jeremiah's exiles is still a daily reality in our world. And for some of us, it is not enough to slap the Jesus sticker on it and wait quietly in our sunny corner until we die. As it turns out, there are a few loose ends flapping in this January breeze. As a side note, you should always be suspicious of a preacher who promises to tie up all the loose ends. There is profound truth and strength to be found in learning to live with unresolved tension. And that is precisely where Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, would lead us.
Well, first of all, Jeremiah's vision came to him before Jerusalem ever fell, and he had to watch that precious and holy city be burned to the ground. Ultimately, he was carried off to Egypt against his will by some misguided citizens trying to escape the exile because, you know, Egypt had always been such a good idea for the Israelites. So Jeremiah certainly didn't get to see his vision fulfilled. Even when the exiles did return to Jerusalem some 50 years later, it was at the pleasure of the Persian Empire who ruled all and saw no need to grant those little peons their own autonomy and full freedom. So the return from exile can only be considered a partial fulfillment anyway. And even Jesus, when he finally did come, declined to restore the Jewish nation to their own rule, which is quite a loose end. The delivery date on this promise seems to keep moving backward. But I did say that Jeremiah's promised restoration was accomplished by Jesus, and Paul affirms this for us in our Ephesians passage. I'd like to read verse 10 from chapter 1. He purposed in Christ to be put into effect... His will, when the times have, will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Christ was the plan from the beginning. And I do believe that the promised healing and reconciliation is God's gift for God's children. So if Jesus is the answer to this vision, the shepherd who gathers us up and brings us home from exile, the divine tire-up of loose ends, then what on earth are we doing here? Why do we still find ourselves sitting in a sanctuary in the year 2015, awaiting the final fulfillment still of Jeremiah 31? How come you young ladies out there are sitting sedately in the pews rather than dancing to music like Jeremiah's vision? How come so many of us still feel like a remnant instead of a member of the great throng streaming to the goodness of God? And where in the world is that blessed wine? In other words, why are we marking the passing of another year reading the same passages again on second Christmas Sunday and waiting still for this hope to be fulfilled? I warn you, my answer may not satisfy you. In fact, you may find it downright maddening, infuriating even, because it is all down to the mercy and patience of God. Already by the time the apostles were dying off, Christians were getting impatient for the second coming, which was supposed to bring in its fullness the kingdom of God. Peter addressed this very question in his second letter when he said, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. 
Just because some of us have already accepted the invitation back from exile doesn't mean we now get to turn around and close the gates to the city so we can get on with the eternal garden party. We are still waiting because of that glorious, inexplicable mercy of our maddeningly patient God who wants as many to return from the exile of sin as will. And the annual encounter with these passages offers us a chance to reconcile ourselves to that waiting. Thanks be to God, the restoration work is still taking account of our woundedness. I know that for a fact because though Jesus returned to heaven, we were not left to wait on our own. Here we come at last to the truth that will sustain us in this new year. We have been given a down payment on Jeremiah's vision, a deposit, a first installment, if you will. Paul calls him the guarantee of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This aspect of the Holy Spirit may not sound very familiar to you, especially if you've only ever heard of those strange powers that he sometimes doles out, or if all you know is that elusive fruit we never seem to achieve, love, peace, patience, etc., etc. When the Spirit is reduced to a list of benefits that he will do for us, like some sort of spiritual health care plan, then the marking of time until Christ's return begins to feel like some cruel sort of joke. A finish line that keeps moving farther and farther away. Instead, Paul affirms here and elsewhere that the Spirit is our first and sustaining taste of that eternal comfort, even as we mourn along our way home. The Spirit is our source of unity, even as we struggle to carry one another's woundedness. The Spirit is our guide who shows us the level paths that we need. And the Spirit is our advocate and witness, reminding us that Jesus taught us and giving us assurance that we are, in fact, children of God. Our forebears in the Wesleyan holiness tradition may not have clung to the church calendar as tightly as I would prefer, but they talked a whole lot about the assurance of the Holy Spirit. An internal assurance of the salvation that was yet to come. This is what fueled their revolution from the 1700s on. As they worked tirelessly to uphold the dignity and worth of every human being, even women, even those child laborers, even slaves, even the homeless, the prostitutes, and the immigrants. It was their firm conviction that God would accomplish this healing that led them to pursue increasing measures of grace and love here in this life rather than waiting for heaven. 
the witness and intercession of the Holy Spirit was a hallmark of our people. As they knew, the Spirit is also our catalyst. Christ promised the Holy Spirit would empower us to bear witness about him to the ends of the earth. As it turns out, a ragged little remnant returning home in fear and trembling isn't quite enough by God's reckoning. Jeremiah's original vision of a mostly Jewish throng is not the final word. This image of streams of people returning to Zion is picked up by other scripture writers and expanded again and again until in Revelation, as we sung this morning, people from every tribe and tongue have reached the holy and restored city and every nation is joining in the song that Jeremiah commands us to sing. So, where do you find yourself this morning in these visions? Are you one of the walking wounded whose experience of exile has left you unsure of your ability to survive 2015? Do Jeremiah's words of hope catch in your throat? There is a place for you here in our midst, carried by our gentle shepherd. Rest among us. Weep if you need to. Catch your breath. Learn the songs of our company of pilgrims and be sustained by the Holy Spirit, learning to embrace the assurance offered there. Are you one of those I spoke to earlier whose hope is strong and your faith is sure? Here's your special invitation. Make 2015 the year that you learn to companion our walking wounded. Learn to bear witness to their pain and suffering. Take the hand of someone in this room who is gasping for faith and teach them the songs you know. Embody Christ for us, inviting all who may to join our throng. And learn to make your faith and assurance winsome to the rest of us so that we may follow your examples as you follow our shepherd. Which of these are you? We all belong in the throng. Let's take a moment of silent prayer before we sing together. We thank you, our Lord and Redeemer, Holy Spirit, our Sustainer, God, our loving parent, for bringing together this little band of returning exiles. And we ask that you would meet us where we are and form us into those who are known by your love. Amen. <laughs>